The scripture tonight comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 17, and then 31 to 35. Listen now for the word of God. Now, before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, you do not know now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, uh, you will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, one who has bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and for this reason he said, not all of you are clean. After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe and returned to the table, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified, and God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will, will glorify him at once. Little children, I am only with you a little longer. You will look for me. And as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. I give you a new commandment, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you should also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Loving and gracious God, as we explore your word together, speak to us what we need to know. In and through this, your holy word, shape us into the people you had in mind at creation. Amen. Amen. So while the story of the Last Supper in Matthew and Luke correlate with the first gospel written down, the gospel of Mark, and they focus on what is now part of our communion liturgy, John's gospel is different. John is always a little different. In this account, Jesus' last supper on earth revolved around this radical act of washing his disciples' feet. And as we get through this, I want to invite you to enter into this story through the viewpoint of Peter, because his reactions tell us so much about what this meant. So right away, we have some clues that something strange was going on. In the first century, meals were shared at low tables while guests kind of reclined on one side. Uh, So having clean feet was pretty important, uh, considering how everyone was basically on the floor. 
But foot washing typically happened before a meal, not, not during a meal. So the fact that it hadn't already happened was strange. And perhaps the disciples were just taking their cue from Jesus. He didn't say anything about it. We're not going to say anything about it. We'll just kind of go with the flow. And then Peter's very dramatic. You will never wash my feet. Reinforces how surprising and shocking it was for Jesus to offer to do it. Now, at first glance, I find Peter's response to be a little humorous. And I wonder if he thought Jesus was giving him like some kind of pop quiz. That the way that he responded, it was as, it was as if he thought the right answer would be to refuse to be washed out of respect for Jesus' position as Messiah. So you can't, don't wash my feet, Jesus. I should wash your feet. But when Jesus said, unless I wash you, you have no part with me, Peter made this complete shift to the other end of the spectrum, <laughs> declared not just my feet, but all of me. In other words, you ought to baptize me, Jesus, not bathe my dirty feet. You are the one who makes our souls clean, not our, our feet. So Jesus makes this distinction about different kinds of cleanliness, physical or spiritual, and then he goes on to wash all the disciples' feet. Now, I'm, I'm poking a little fun at Peter here, but I think a lot of us resonate with him. Peter was so eager. He loved Jesus. And he always seemed to be trying to gain his approval, to earn his love and praise. Peter was always trying to have the right answer and do the right thing, even though he usually misunderstood what was going on. And all of this striving for the right answer, Jesus just wanted him to slow down a bit and pay attention to what was happening. So I I imagine that Peter's discomfort with the idea of Jesus washing his feet stemmed from two things. When viewed in a mindset of of earning Jesus' approval, Peter might have resisted because he didn't feel as if he deserved Jesus' service in this way. Jesus was the best. He was the Son of God. He was the Messiah. Jesus was the one who deserved to have his feet washed by the disciples, not the other way around. And secondly, the task of washing the feet of dinner guests was usually reserved for women who worked as servants or who were enslaved. It was a fairly straightforward and utilitarian act of hospitality. It was a low-status thing to do. So Jesus doing this act was so strange and so shocking that he had to explain it further. So he said, do you know what I have done to you? And he goes on to explain how it wasn't a one-off demonstration. It was a new way of relating to one another. Now that's nice, Jesus, but we might still wonder why. Why not just say, love one another? That's the most important thing. And to help us think through this a little bit, I was reminded of uh, this movie that came out a few years ago called Inside Out from Disney and Pixar. Um, And it brought the viewer into the mind of a young girl who was struggling to cope with a cross-country move uh, during the school year. And inside her brain, there were five emotions uh, animated uh, by five characters named joy, sadness, disgust, anger, and fear. Those emotions shared responsibility for interpreting the events of her life and for storing her memories at the end of every day. The individual memories were kind of represented by these different colored spheres, depending on what emotion dominated that memory. Yellow for joy, blue for sadness, and so on. Every once in a while, one of those spheres would kind of come in and be glowing, and it would be a core memory. 
Now, those memories were stored in a different part of her brain and contribute to shaping her character and her personality. In the movie, the character Joy learns the value of experiencing sadness and stops trying to make every single memory happy. That's a good life lesson. But for our purposes tonight, I find this idea of a core memory very interesting. If you think back to your own childhood or your young adulthood, it's likely that you could identify several core memories. And some of them are related to milestones, like getting your driver's license or going to a school dance. Some of them are for experiencing something for the first time, but some of them might seem kind of random. What makes a core memory memorable can be any number of factors. Now, I've I've spoken before about how uh, my dad passed away suddenly when I just turned 10. And now looking back, so many things from that last year of his life have become core memories even though they probably wouldn't have been that way otherwise. When I look at photos from the family Easter egg hunt earlier that year, or a trip to his hometown of Birmingham, Alabama, right before my birthday, pictures of him helping me set up my first boom box, (laughs) uh, my big birthday gift, all of those are, are colored now by the sudden loss of his life. In those photos, he looks tired because we didn't know that he had a heart condition. I don't really care about boomboxes, but I remember this one because it was related to him and his kindness and his love for me. So when we think about these core memories, there's all these different things that can kind of make them cemented in our memory in that way. And Jesus, he knew that his hour had come. He knew he was to suffer and to die. He knew that his beloved friends and family would not understand He knew that they would suffer and grieve. He knew that he would have to endure the grave before he could leave the tomb. Jesus also knew that when we look back at loss and pain, when we are overcome with grief, it all tends to become a blur. It's hard to know which way is up. Time shifts and slows down and then speeds up again in strange ways. Particularly upsetting losses and traumas can even cause memory loss of those events as our bodies and our brains try and protect us. So Jesus knew that his friends would look back at this last supper together on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection, and that they would view this interaction colored by those things. So if you knew that you were dying and no one else quite understood, and this was your last chance to say something to your beloved friends, to give them an encouragement and a challenge, what would you do? Jesus paired words they knew well with an act that displayed that kind of love in a new way. The Hebrew scriptures are woven through with admonitions to love one's neighbor, to care for the vulnerable, to respect life, that loving one another is one way to love God. It wasn't a new idea. But with this act, as radical as it was, Jesus made that kind of love love that truly disrupts unjust systems and brokenness, he made it visible and tangible in a way that they would never forget. The tenderness and the care, the serving others when Jesus himself was a different kind of king who ought to be served, it turned all of their expectations upside down. And he knew they wouldn't get it. He knew that they would think it was strange and shrug and say, okay, there's Jesus being Jesus again. But on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the empty tomb, they would understand. 
they would understand that serving one another, even in a way that was deemed uncomfortable or below one's status, that it was love. They would understand that Jesus' death on the cross was not Jesus failing to be the revolutionary that they hoped he would be. It, It was love. It was laying down his life for the ones that he loved. The ones he loved to the end. There's a lot about our lives that we don't understand in the moment right now. There's so much about pain and grief that whenever we experience it, it kind of crowds out the truths that we know and remember. But Jesus gave us all this core memory. Love one another just as I have loved you all the way to the end, and though you don't know it yet, into a new beginning. What a gift. Amen.